Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we? It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Do me a favor. Turn to your neighbor. Give them a big smile and say, it's so good to see you at church this morning. Come on. Let's wake up a little bit. We're happy to be here. Um, Right? Last week, I understand the solemn faces. It's Time Change Sunday. Everyone's miserable. Um, My favorite part about Time Change Sunday and you'll never experience this until you have kids, is when you put your kids to bed at night and they think you're conning them. Like, listen, mom and dad, the sun's up. Why, why am I going to bed right now? And I'm like, ah, because it's time. You just have to trust me. But uh, it's not Time Change Sunday. We're here. We're happy. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to be in the first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 10 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we can help. Just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles who'd love to get a copy of God's Word to you. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that and to bring that home and to have a copy of God's Word in your home. If you're visiting with us, my name is Calvin. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. I'm so thankful that you're hanging out with us, so glad that you're worshiping with us. We count it an honor and a privilege that you would spend time with us this weekend and just praying that you'd be impacted and blessed by our time of worship together. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10 again. And and I'm really excited for this morning. My my prayer is is that you guys would be leaving here encouraged and uplifted. And the reason I'm excited is we're going to talk about something that I would say um, when I really understood it and when I really believed this truth of God's word, it changed my relationship with God and it changed my life more than any other truth in Scripture. What we're going to talk about today is the one thing that when it clicked in my heart and when I saw what God was doing in my life, my love for him grew exponentially, my closeness in my walk with him grew exponentially. This was the thing that I wrestled with for so long that that when I saw it rightly, really changed my life. And here's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the the differences between a cage and a fence. We're going to be talking about cages and fences this morning. And some of you are looking like, Cal, what are you talking about? And and here's the thing. Um, It's really, really important that we understand this. And if you think about cages and fences, they share some similarities, right? Both of them are boundaries that we put up, and it's because we don't want people to leave a certain area. Whether it's bars or it's walls or, or, or it's screens, cages and fences in some ways operate for the same purpose. But when you understand what a cage is and what a fence is, you realize that they could not be more different in a lot of ways. Like, let's talk about cages for a second. Right? Cages exist to lock you up and to keep you in a confined space. And when you think of a cage, think of a prison cell. And this picture is a picture of a prison cell in Alcatraz. And a couple of years ago, my wife and I got to go out to San Francisco and we did an Alcatraz tour and we took a ferry out to the island and we learned about the history, we learned about the famous criminals that were in Alcatraz. But the thing that really impacted me most from that trip is when I actually just walked and saw the cell that these prisoners lived in. And it just like blew my mind and honestly affected me emotionally for a couple days that their entire life was confined to a room that was no wider than my wingspan and only about 10 feet long. Like these people were locked away in a cage on an island, and it was to rob them of their freedom, it was to control them, and it was to keep them imprisoned. A fence is different, and I want you to throw up this next picture. Here's a picture of a fence, and and, um, 
This is a picture of a screened fence in Orlando. Now, when my wife and I got married, we moved to Orlando and lived there for a couple years. And if you've been to Orlando, you know that you can drive by subdivisions and you will see dozens and dozens of these fences that look exactly like this. And they're big and they're bulky and it's these black screens. And I remember when we were looking for a house, I asked my realtor, why are there so many of these big, ugly black screen fences? Why is this a thing? And um, the realtor said, well, Cal, what you need to understand about Orlando is, is that in Orlando, there's so many alligators that any unprotected body of water will be inhabited by an alligator in a couple days. They'll find it. So if there is not a screen up to protect from an alligator, every swimming pool would have alligators living in it. And I'm like, wow, this is a terrible place to live. Why did I move down here? This is awful. And they're like, listen, a lot of people have um, pools because Orlando's hot and terrible, so, so we need these fences. And, and so, but here, here's what you think about it. The fence is actually there to allow protection and more freedom. If you have this fence up in your backyard, your kids are actually more free to enjoy the pool than if they didn't have a fence. Even though there's no boundary, there would always be real present danger about predators being in your pool. So while a cage exists to lock you up and to take away your freedom, a fence actually exists to protect you and to allow you to live in more freedom and to enjoy what you have been given. Think about dogs. How many people in here have had a puppy before? Right, you know that when you have a puppy and when they're just babies, like you've got to keep them in a cage when you leave the house or they're going to destroy everything, right? My wife and I, again, when we lived in Orlando, we got a puppy like a month into our marriage. It was our baby before uh, babies. It was a yellow lab. Her name was Riley. She was a great dog. And I remember there was this one time where we just loved her and thought she was the sweetest thing. And even though she was a puppy and had no business being left alone in the house, we left her alone in the house once to go to the store. And we were like, listen, the store's only like three minutes away. We're only got to pick up a couple things. We'll be gone less than 15 minutes. The puppy will be fine. Let's not put her in her cage. And uh, when we got home, we found out that Riley had eaten 12 bars of soap. <laughs> Not great. Um, the only thing worse than cleaning up dog puke is cleaning up dog puke that comes up as bubbles. Like, that, that's a real thing that happened, right? Like, we need to keep that dog in its cage or else it's going to destroy itself and our house. But when the dog got older, guess what we did? We installed an electric fence. So she could enjoy the freedom of being outside while protected from traffic or from running away. The fence was for her protection and freedom. We wanted her to have more freedom, but the cage was, was to take those freedoms away. There's a massive difference between cages and fences. So here's the question. Why am I talking about this? Why am I talking about cages and fences? And here's why. Because for so much of my life, I would say all the way up even into my early 20s, I viewed following Jesus Christ, I viewed the Bible, and I viewed my relationship with God as a cage that was imprisoning me from other things, that was making me a slave. And my problem was is ultimately I had a very, very small... I didn't participate in those things is because I knew my mom would kill me if she caught me and I was terrified of my mom. Like, we're just gonna lay it out there. That, that, that's the truth. But so it's like, I, 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 I have minimal friendships and my friendships are, are only surface level because Christianity is not allowing me to enjoy these things. Or there'd be girls that, that I would meet that I'd become friends with that I'd like, but they weren't believers. 
And I knew that the Bible said that you shouldn't be unequally yoked, that you should share the same faith with the people that you pursue and you marry. So I'm like, man, there's these girls that are amazing and that I really like, but I'm never going to be able to date them because they don't know the Lord. I felt like my relationship with God, with God was imprisoning me or keeping me from certain things. And I had a very, very small view of God's love for me. So let me explain what that means. I thought that God's love for me ended at the cross. That like God spent all of the love that he had for me when he sent Jesus to the cross. And he was going to love me enough to die and take away my sin. But then it was up for me to, to prove that I love him by following his commands. And it was on my shoulders to prove that I really loved him back. So I thought the way it worked, God's like, listen, I'm going to love you and I'm going to save you even though you don't deserve it. But now you've got to follow my arbitrary commands to prove that you love me back. But that's not what God was doing at all. And then in college, I started to listen to some new preachers that were unlike anything I'd ever heard before. And I started really diving into God's word and God's word became alive in my heart. And I kept reading passages like this. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That we're not prisoners to God, but we're his family and we're his children. Galatians 5.1 was such an important verse in my life for so long, it still is. It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. That actually what God is doing is, is he is drawing us out of captivity, out of slavery, into freedom. And it's sin that makes us a slave. And he is fighting for our freedom. This was a, a God's love that I'd never heard or understood before. Or Romans 8.23, man, I love this one. If you're ever looking for a verse to memorize, this is awesome. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That God is a giving God. That God wants us to walk in blessing and in joy and in freedom. My view of God was wrong. I've been viewing the Christian life as a cage robbing me from something. When in fact it was a fence that out of love was protecting me and leading me into true freedom and joy. So here's our big idea. Here's where we're going this morning. I'm going to lay it out there. We are going to spend our life living in God's protective fence or in sin's cage. There's no other option. You are here this morning and you're either in a cage because you believe the lie of the enemy and you believe that sin is where freedom is going to lie and it's left you in a cage or you're going to trust God that he is the good shepherd, that he leads to green pastures and still waters that he provides and is leading us to what's best and you're going to live within God's protective fence. Church, if we don't get this one perspective right, if we miss this one thing, we are never going to flourish in our walk with Christ. Everything's on the line this morning. We have to get this. This is what Paul's going to contend. Look at verse 1. Here's what he says. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate of the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And verse 6 is the key. Now these things took place, for, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, church, we need to remember the Israelites in the wilderness wandering between Egypt and the promised land. 
right? And I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what could a bunch of Israelites wandering around in the wilderness possibly have anything to do with us in 2019? Why would Paul call the Corinthians, let alone us, to look back to the Israelites in the wilderness and think that we could learn anything from them? It was 3,000 years ago. Culture, life could not have been more different. But when you really examine who the Israelites were and understand what God is trying to show us, you understand that we have a ton in common with the Israelites, specifically when they were in the wilderness. Think about who the Israelites were. The Israelites were a people that God miraculously freed from slavery. They were slaves in Egypt. Do you remember the story that there was a famine in, in Egypt and in Israel and, and Joseph who was a slave in Egypt? God gave him the miraculous ability to interpret dreams and he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream and, and he predicted that a famine was coming. So Egypt put away a lot of extra food and when the famine came, they had food. So, so the King of Israel is like, listen, bring your family down here. Come live in Egypt. It's going to be easier. You don't need to live in God's promised land for you. Come to Egypt. And they came to Egypt, and it was easier for a little bit until the Egyptians made them their slaves. It was a bait and switch. But God had freed them miraculously. They were called God's children. God was leading them. It says that his presence led them with a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. At every moment, they could have looked up and seen the presence of God. God was with them. Doesn't that sound a lot like us, right? That we are people who have been freed from sin, that God is leading us, that God is with us, but we're not exactly home yet. All right, look at this chart. I wanted to show this to you as clearly as I could, um, that just like um, us... The, Egypt, the Israelites in Egypt were slaves. You know the Bible says that we were slaves to sin? Did you know that? In Romans 6, 17 it says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. And then just like the Israelites were headed to a promised land, you know we are heading right now to a promised land. That this is not our home, but we are citizens of heaven. And we are going to a place where there are no more tears, there's no more sin, there's no more brokenness and suffering. That is our home, that is our reality, but we're not there yet. So right now, just like the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were on their journey to the promised land, we are on our journey. And just like the Israelites, God is with us. He is leading us. He has given us his spirit. But we have a choice to make. Are we going to follow God and trust him in the journey? Or are we going to walk back into slavery and into sin's cage? Look at verse 6 again. It says, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. It is as written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 20,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and they were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Okay, so here's what, what Paul's doing. He's bringing up four specific reminders of where the Israelites failed. And I've got this listed for you. There's, there's four ways they failed. The first is idolatry. 
and that happened in Exodus 32. I have these references down. We're not going to go into each one, but you can look them up and study them later if you want. They fell into idolatry. They fell into sexual immorality, Numbers 25, impatience, Numbers 21, and grumbling in Numbers. Enslaved, right? When they uh, would grumble and complain, guess what they would say? They said, we wish we were back in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to the wilderness to die? It was better for us back in Egypt when we were slaves. And God was always like, guys, you're crazy. Do you remember what it was like in Egypt? Do you remember being slaves? I am leading you to freedom and you want slavery. You want the cage. And what Paul's saying is, is listen, there is something in our hearts that even though God has given us his son for us, that he has proven his goodness and his love over and over again, we desire to walk back into the cage of sin and slavery. And here's what Paul is saying. We have a choice. This is very, very clear. Today we're going to choose. Are we going to choose slavery or freedom? Are we going to choose the cage or the fence? Right? The Israelites in the desert, they chose idolatry. We're going to choose idolatry or worship. They chose sexual immorality. We're going to choose immorality or we're going to choose purity. They chose impatience. It says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. They were saying, God, are you good? Are you faithful? Why aren't you acting faster? We're going to choose impatience or trust or grumbling or gratitude. Those are the four ways the Israelites fell. And here's what's interesting to me. Isn't it crazy how 3,000 years ago, the very four things that tripped up the Israelites are things that trip us up all the time today? that we have not grown past these things in any way. And what Paul is saying is, is these need to serve as a reminder that these things will lead us to a cage. All right, let's talk about idolatry for a second. Listen, anything that we worship above God in our hearts is ultimately going to make us its slave. God is the only thing that we can worship that's going to lead to true life, freedom, and joy. Anything else we place higher than God will ultimately make us its slave, even good things. All right, so let's talk about a great thing. Um, if I worship my wife, Mary, if we worship our spouse, like, listen, I love Mary fiercely. She is my best friend. She is what, the greatest, like, tangible picture of God's grace in my life. I, I love her like crazy. But if I start to worship her and say, listen, all of my hope, all of my faith, all of my trust is on you, and you are more valuable to me than even God is, two things are going to happen. The first thing is, is I'm going to crush her with that weight and pressure because she was not designed to carry my worship and it's going to fracture our relationship. And the second thing is, is I am always going to be imprisoned to how Mary feels about me at any given moment and her health and safety, right? If Mary is my idol, then every time she gets in a car to drive to the store, my whole self-worth is exist because the Lord could call her home. She could get in an accident. And I'm going to be uh, enslaved and in a cage to fear and worry about my wife's health or how she feels about me. It leads to a cage. Right, let's talk about beauty, right? If your idol is, uh, how do I look? And how attractive am I? And, and what type of shape am I in? Can, can I make um, something clear to you that you're not going to like? You know you're playing a losing game, right? That all of us in here, we have one thing in common, that we're all getting older and uglier, like second by second. Right? You are going to be 45 minutes older and uglier when you leave here than when you came in. And the only person this doesn't apply to is my wife, Mary. She gets more beautiful every single day. I don't know how it happens, right? You like that? Um, but it's true. 
We're playing a losing game. The Bible says that the flesh fades away. That God doesn't look on the outward appearance because the outward appearance isn't eternal, but he looks on the heart. We're settling for a losing game. Or what about children, right? Well, I'm going to worship my kids, and my kids are special, and they're going to change the world, and I want to do everything for them to give them every chance because I am certain that my kids are going to be professional athletes, and their side hustle is, is they're going to cure cancer, right? They're amazing. They're, they're, they're the best, and I'm going to dedicate my life to my kids. Well, again, guess what's going to happen? What happens when your kids aren't professional athletes or don't cure cancer? They're going to be crushed under the weight of your expectation. And then what happens when your kids act like kids and they rebel and make stupid decisions? It's going to crush you. You are setting yourself up to have an unhealthy relationship with your kid when you worship them. You think what you're doing is the best for them. It's actually the worst. Our kids were designed to know and worship God and they need to see their parents do that or they're never going to learn how. And when we teach our kids that the world revolves around them, we shouldn't be shocked when they're freaking selfish when they're in college and making idiot decisions because this is what they've been told to be and do. All right, what about perfection? Do I have any perfectionists in the room today? Okay, this is my favorite. I love this. You see, here's what perfectionists do. They raise their hand, but only this high. Because they're like, I know that I am, and I know I have to be honest, but I don't want anyone to see me because I'm a perfectionist and I don't want to be called out, right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm asked this again, and I want you to raise it up proud. Any perfectionists in the room? Look, see how that feels? You're breaking free from perfectionism right now, right? It's a good thing. Okay, listen. You guys know the cage that is, right? And the imprisonment of perfectionism, enough is never enough. Good is never good enough. There's always more to do, right? We purposely walk ourselves into this cage that robs us of joy and robs us of freedom because we think that we need to be our own salvation. We need to be enough, right? What about work, right? No little kid ever grows up and says, man, when I grow up, I want to be a workaholic and neglect my family and have my kids resent me, right? Like I'm so looking forward to having my wife hate me because I work so much. That's the dream. It just, it happens because work makes us feel good. And it makes us feel significant and valued. And we're like, man, I like how this makes me feel. And we start to worship it. It becomes an idol. Right? Social media. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I would bet that most of us in this room have not gone a day this week without being on social media of some form. You know Facebook went down for a day this week? You know, they were like burning things in the streets of Grand Haven and they had pitchforks. And like, they're like, if we don't fix this in five hours, the world is actually going to end becomes an idol. We, we can't live without it. Right? So idolatry is one for sure. Here's another one. Immorality. Right? The, the second one was immorality. And I could talk about this for hours, about the devastation of sexual sin and how it enslaves. And, and I could talk about statistics on pornography and, and sexual abuse, but there is nothing that is chewing up and spitting out the young generation like sexual immorality and sexual sin, and it robs us of healthy relationships. It robs us of being able to worship the Lord. It is devastating to our hearts. Right? The second two are impatience and grumbling. And here's what's really interesting about this. So, so Paul lists four ways the Israelites failed. The first two were actions, idolatry and immorality. The second two were attitudes, impatience and grumbling. And what Paul's saying is, is it's not just our actions that lock us up in a cage, it's also our attitudes. And I want to lay out one of these because you need to see this. This is amazing. Numbers 24, it's on the screen. You can follow along as I read. It says, 
from Mount Hor, they went out and by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So they're just traveling in the wilderness. Then look what it says. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt into, to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Like, isn't that an insane statement? They're like, why'd you bring us out to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. And we hate this terrible food. Think about that. Like, if they're saying there's no food, how can they be complaining about the terrible food? Look what it says. It says, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among them and to the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Here's what I want you to understand. When we choose to set our hearts to complaining and grumbling and impatience, we lose touch with reality. The Israelites are saying, there's no food for us, and we hate our food. They had lost touch. But don't we do the same thing? Right? Don't we fixate on one thing we don't have, and we lose touch with how good and how faithful and how gracious God has been? I think about how insane that complaint is for the Israelites. God had sent plagues, miraculous plagues, into Egypt to free them. He had literally parted the Red Sea. Every one of them who was complaining and grumbled had walked through the Red Sea on dry land because God parted the water. Those Israelites, while they were complaining, could have looked up to the sky and seen God's presence. God was miraculously providing manna from heaven. He was doing everything for them, but it wasn't what they wanted, so they fixated on one thing and they lost touch with reality. And by the way, we do this all the time. Well, God's not good because I'm not married yet. What? What? God has saved you. He's redeemed you. He's called you his child. Every breath you've been given is a gift from the Lord. And he has gifted you and empowered you to serve him even in your singleness. There is nothing incomplete about you at all. That you already have a groom and his name is Jesus Christ. Well, God's not good because I don't have a kid yet. Like, be careful about what you're asking for, right? God's not good because I'm not more successful. God's not good because I don't have, like we fixate on one thing and we lose every sense of reality and how good God is. It sets us in prison. And by the way, when is grumbling and impatience ever made anything better? Nobody has made good choices because they didn't want to wait on the Lord any longer. Um, in the baptism video that we showed last week and baptism we had a few weeks ago, there was a man in the tank and I love this testimony. He just got in the tank and he goes, Lord, I want you to know I'm still here and I'm still trusting and I'm still faithful and I'm gonna keep believing. I'm not giving up yet. That's what it looks like to live in God's freedom. Again, these, look at verse six. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did what Paul is desperately trying to communicate is that as children of God, the reason we walk in obedience, the reason that God gives us his law, it's not just arbitrary tasks we have to do, but he is leading us into joy and freedom. He is the good shepherd. He's leading us to green pastures and still waters. And he's saying, listen, if you do life this way, it's going to lead to joy, freedom, and blessing. And Paul's saying, listen, don't lose sight of that and walk into the cage of sin. Okay, but here's our problem is that so often in our sin we confuse God's fence with a cage. 
And we believe the lie that true life, that true freedom, that true joy is found outside of God's protection and outside of God's word and his law. Right? This was Satan's lie to Eve in the garden, right? Remember he said, listen, no, no, no. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you're not going to die. No, no, no. You're actually going to be like God. There's going to be more freedom. There's going to be more out there for you. You just got to eat this fruit. When in fact, Eve had everything. She was in a garden. All of her physical needs were being met. There was no sin. She had perfect relationship with God and her husband. She had everything, but she believed the lie that there was more outside of God's protection, and she traded perfection for death. We do the same thing when we believe that God's fence is a cage. Listen, here's what you need to understand. You understand that sin is always a honey trap, right? It's always like, man, sin, it's, it's, it's going to taste better. It's going to feel better. It's going to be easier. You don't have to wait. You, you, you don't have to trust. that This is going to fix everything for you. Right? And it tastes good until you're in the cage. Then the cage shuts and you find out that you're a prisoner. Okay, so here's what we need to talk about. There's two imperatives that we need to be doing if we're going to stay out of sin's cage. And these aren't in your notes, but you can write these down. If you're taking notes, here's the first thing we need to do to stay out of sin's cage. We need to remember the gospel. It's important for us to remember the gospel. We need to remember how good God is. We need to remember his love for us and that everything he is doing is for our good and his glory. So that when God calls us to purity, he's not doing us to keep us from anything, but he wants our marriages and our relationships to be healthy and blessed. And he knows how sexual sin and brokenness can devastate relationships. When God calls us to worship him, it's not because he's an egomaniac and he needs our worship. Trust me, you guys all sound good. I bet you the angels sing better than we do, right? He's doing it because he knows our hearts need to worship the thing we were created for. It's for our good. That when we forgive and love others, he knows that bitterness and selfishness will rot out our hearts. He's doing it to give us freedom. First Peter, or the second, sorry, the second thing we need to do we need to believe the gospel, believe that these are true. Second thing we need to, need to do is fight for one another. We need to fight for one another. And um, here's the truth. We all have blind spots. We all are sinful people, and, and we have attitudes, and we have actions that we maybe have grown up with or been part of our life for a long time, and they're just blind spots. So what God has done is, is he's given us a family to lock arms and to fight for one another and to expose these things so that we might live in freedom, right? Like, Sam, love you. You got some blind spots, bro. And, and, and you love the Lord, and I love the Lord, and I have some blind spots. We need each other to, to help. So let me play this out very, very specifically. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, so imagine um, if I was at work and, and I come home from work and, and Mary's like, hey, Cal, how was your day? And I was like, good, I went out to lunch with Carlos. And, and Carlos and I, we work together, we're, we're in a small group together. And, I was, and she was like, how'd lunch go? I'm like, you know what, lunch was good for the most part. The only weird part was the entire time we were hanging out, a lion was eating Carlos. He had him by the shoulder and by the neck, and like blood was squirting out. It got all, all over my tacos. It was gross. But like we had a great time. He just was getting eaten by a lion. I feel bad for the guy. Like I hope Mary would be like, well, what'd you do about it? Like I don't think she'd say, well, I didn't like Carlos anyways. It's not that big a deal, right? Like she'd be concerned. 
And, and imagine if I said, well, here's what I did. We, we talked about college basketball. You know, it's March Madness. Michigan versus Michigan State today, it's a pretty big deal. So, so while the lion was gnawing on Carlos, we had a deep discussion on college basketball, and we talked about our lawns. Because spring's coming, you know, and we got to get the weeds out, and, you know, there's a, a lot of stuff to do. She'd be like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Listen, when we go into small group together, our job is not to just talk about common interests. Our job is to love one another enough to say, I'm going to fight for you. And where you're getting devoured by a lion, I'm going to speak into it. And I'm going to help because I want you to walk in freedom. And I love you enough that it's going to be uncomfortable for a minute. But we're going to enjoy freedom together. And I'm committed to you. Maybe here's a better question. Who really knows you? Who knows what's going on in your life? Because listen, choosing to live on an island is choosing to live in a cage. And when you set walls up around your life and people can't get in and know who you are for whatever reason, you've just created your own prison. We've been given a family. We can't do it by ourselves. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Luke 4 and to turn a couple of books back in your Bible to Luke 4. And I want to close by giving you a pretty incredible picture that we're given by Jesus. Because the Israelites, you see, they weren't the only people that spent time in the wilderness. You know that Jesus spent time in the wilderness right when he began his ministry? And this is such an awesome picture of what we've been talking about and looking about. And just a little bit of background, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and he has now begun his ministry. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him. He is beginning his earthly ministry, showing us that he's the Messiah. Look at verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, and for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. All right, so Jesus gets baptized, and it's interesting. He doesn't go to Jerusalem and announce himself as the Messiah. The first thing he does is he goes into the wilderness to fast and be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And here's the question. Do you think that number 40 was random? Do you think Jesus is like, man, I'm just going to go hang out in the wilderness and I'll come back when I come back? Absolutely not. You see, we know from the Old Testament that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus, by going in the same wilderness for 40 days, is sending a very, very clear message that where the Israelites had failed as God's children, Jesus was going to succeed as God's perfect son. That where Israel fell into sin, Jesus was going to have victory over temptation and over Satan. And by the way, that's good news for us because we need Jesus' perfection just as much as the Israelites did. And so often we look at, at idolatry and immorality and grumbling and impatience. And it's like, man, that is defined so many seasons of my life. And it's easy for us to become discouraged and be like, I can never live up. And, and I, I'm just choosing to live in a cage. Well, listen, our freedom from sin is not based on our merit. It's based on Jesus Christ. And the first thing he did in his ministry said, listen... Where you failed, I'm going to succeed because I am the king of the world who has come to take away the sin of the world. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. You need to see this gospel picture. But Jesus is not only showing us that he is our victory, he's also giving us three keys to success on our journey home. He's showing us how we can have victory over sin and temptation. The first is we need to be filled with God's spirit. 
Listen, if you're going to have victory, if you're going to live in God's protective fence and not in sin's cage, you can't do it on your own. You're desperate for the Spirit of God. Look at verse 1 again. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. So Jesus is full of the Spirit and he's being led by the Spirit. Church, look here. You know we have that exact same Spirit? That what was going on with Jesus is not something that is foreign to us? but that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave indwells and inhabits our souls as children of God. We've been given this spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right? God says, listen, I'm not going to allow anything to overtake you. That the power of sin pales in comparison with the power of God. And how is God faithful? He's given us himself. The spirit of God resides in us. Okay, but here's what's dangerous. Hebrews says that when we allow unrepentant idolatry and sin to remain in our hearts, when we don't confess that and repent it, you know that we have the power to silence God's spirit in our heart? The Bible calls it to quench the spirit, like wring it out so it's dry in us. So the first key to a successful journey home is we need to be desperate for God's spirit. And here's what that looks like. We need to repent over our sin. We need to confess that to the Lord. And we need to ask God, would you fill me with your spirit? That should be a prayer of ours every day. God, would you fill me with your spirit? I can't do it on my own. God, I've got a tough meeting. Fill me with your spirit. God, my children are animals. Fill me with your spirit. Help me love them well. I'm not laughing. Like, it's true. This is real, on-the-ground stuff. We need God's Spirit. Are you desperate for the Spirit of God? Okay, look at verse 3. It said, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. So the first temptation is just a, a, a physical temptation. Hey, Jesus, you're hungry. You have the ability to turn this stone into bread. Just do it. Just use your power selfishly just once. And Jesus wouldn't do it. You know, he never used his supernatural power for his benefit. It was always for healing others. It was always for saving others. He never allowed his godness to trump his humanity. What an amazing thing. Look at verse 5. This is the key one. Said, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms in the world in a moment in time. So imagine that. All of the kingdoms in the world at a moment of time. What must have that looked like? And he said to him, to you I will give all of this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Second key for our successful journey home is simply faith in God. And you need to understand everything was on the table in this moment for Jesus. Here's what Satan's doing. Look here. Satan is saying, listen, Jesus, I know why you came to earth. And I know that in order for you to purchase man back for God, you're going to have to be rejected. You're going to have to suffer. You're going to be crucified. And all of the sin of the world is going to be placed on your shoulders. He's saying, Jesus, you can skip all of that. I'll give it to you. You just have to bow your knees once to me. It's painless. It's simple. You can skip out on all of the pain and suffering that you're going to have to go through. Just take the easy way out once. 
And you see, it was a lie, and it was a honey trap. Satan was trying to say, do what's easy now. But what Satan knew is, is if God bowed to Satan, the war would be lost. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I exist to worship and to do the will of the Father. Okay, I need you to hang with me for a sec. You know, when I was writing the sermon, and I had that second point, faith in God, I was like, that just seems simple. It kind of seems trite. It seems a little churchy. Like, that's what you'd expect to hear in church. You need to have faith in God. Here's what I want you to know, though. Like, we're church people. I know many of you. If I were to ask you to raise your hand and say, who believes that God is good and God is in control, a lot of hands would go up in this room. So can I ask the tough question right now? If that's true, if we really believe that, why are we so scared all the time? And why do we have to control everything? See, I think we, we know that God is in control and that we know that God is good, but our heart's on the ground. It's like, no, 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 no. I, I've got to be in control. And, and, and if things happen outside of my... And that he is working all things together for our good in his glory. If we really have faith in God, what do we have to be afraid of? If we really believe that he's good and that he's in control, why do I have to have my grip around every aspect in my life? See, it's locking us up. We need to have faith in God. And then the last is finally faithfulness to God's word. Faithfulness to God's word. Verse 9, he says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, here's what's interesting. Don't miss the fact that Satan is tempting Jesus with God's word. You see, when I grew up and I learned this story, I was always told, listen, look at Jesus. He's amazing. He just memorized the Bible. So whenever there was a temptation, he just quoted scripture back. And that, that's how you beat temptation. You just have to memorize the Bible. A Bible verse a day keeps the, the enemy away, right? And listen, I'm not minimizing memorizing scripture. It's hugely important. But Satan knew scripture. In fact, he had memorized scripture and he was using it to tempt Jesus. What's more important than just memorizing God's word is saying, no, 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 this is what's going to set the trajectory for my life. This is my compass. And what God's word calls me to, I'm going to do the best in my power and through the power of the spirit to walk faithfully to that. I want to close with this verse. You've heard it before, but I think there's a nuance that you might have missed that, that I think is really powerful. Here's what it says. It says Hebrews 11:6. 6. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. But look at the last line. And that he rewards those who seek him. See, faith is not just knowing that God is real or believing that he's real. Faith is believing that in following God, when we seek after him, when we follow him, it leads to our reward. Faith is believing that, God, you've set up a fence for my protection that is leading me to green pastures and to freedom and joy and health and that sin is always leading me to a cage. It's not just that he's there. It's that he's good and that he's faithful and what he calls us to is for our good and his glory. 
So here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. You don't need to put anything away right now. I promise nothing's getting stolen off your lap. We don't have any leprechauns here this morning that kind of, you know, run under the seats. Um, I need to close with this question, though. What are the things in your life that's keeping you locked up in a cage? On this, just last night, we had small group after the service, and, and our guys got together, and we had a time of prayer, and, and we just asked one another, listen, if you see something in my life that's not healthy, if you see an attitude or an action that's causing me to live in a cage, would you tell me about it? Because I don't want to live in slavery to sin. I want to live in the freedom that God has purchased for me. What are the things in your life? Maybe it's the four things that were listed when the Israelites fell, the idolatry, the immorality, the impatience, or the grumbling. Are those present? What are you worshiping? What's consuming your thoughts and minds in a way that's unhealthy and has been elevated higher than God that's going to lead you to a prison? What attitudes just need to die in your heart? Or maybe it's the last two things we talked about. Maybe you're here and you're just living in the prison of fear or control. And maybe God's calling you to faith right now, saying, believe that I am good and that when you draw near to me, there is blessing and there is reward and there is life. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, church. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just would ask right now, would your spirit move in a significant way in this church, in our hearts, in this building? God, we need you. God, we need more of your spirit. God, there's so much sin in our hearts. There's so many times that we have run to other things and you are patient and you are gracious and you are drawing us back to yourself even right now. And God, would we just lift our hands to you and say that you are good and that you are enough. God, I'm asking right now, would you develop just a bitterness in our hearts for the taste of sin? Would we understand that the honey trap is not honey at all, but it is toxic to our hearts and it wants to make us a slave? And would we delight, like you say, would we delight in rich food? Would we drink and be satisfied in you? Because you are our good shepherd and you lead us to life and you have proven that so perfectly in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sin. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for loving us. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.